way the Bible talks about us and our own struggles with, with anger. I want to lead off with a couple of passages, if we can, just to set up our time. And, and what I'm going to do is, is try and give a, a just very quick overview of the way the Bible describes anger. Um, and then I want to land how we should land in the, the emphasis that the Bible puts on uh, sinful human anger. And so let's look at a couple of passages. The first one, Proverbs 15, 18. And there are lots of passages in the scripture that talk about anger or wrath, bitterness, rage. The Proverbs 15, 18 says this, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. I want you to notice a couple of things, and I think this will be helpful. Uh, when you're studying scripture, one of the most important things that you can do is to, to understand how God describes things that we experience. I think this is a perfect example. And what you see is a couple of things tethered together. There's something that's promoted, that's healthy, that's good. And we see this promoted in lots of places in scripture. We even, this is even described in the New Testament as, um, as a fruit of the spirit, patience. And that is, that is coupled together almost as an opposite of what God describes in terms of being hot-tempered or angered. And so I want you to, to, to notice those because the beauty of the scripture when you're paying attention and reading it uh, is, as it describes our human experiences, it often tells us how we fall into certain things and then how we get out of certain things. And I think this is a perfect example coupled together. I want to, um, we'll, we'll talk about that passage a little bit more toward the end of our time. But I want you to notice things like that. Patience becomes, I won't say an equal opposite, but it, it becomes a remedial pursuit, a, a way to restore, a way to overcome our hot-temperedness or our anger. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says this, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. Don't be easily offended, is what he's saying, for anger resides in the lap of fools. You remember what I said Thomas Brooks mentioned is that we must love truth both shining and scorching. That passage there essentially just called all of us fools to some degree or another. Now, I know you say, like, hold on, you, you mean you're calling me an angered person? Well, I know it's probably not you. By the end of the time this morning, you'll probably say, yes, he was right. It was, it's me. All of us struggle to some degree with anger. This is not something that's uncommon in the human experience. But I want us to describe first just broad biblical categories about this issue of anger. Broad biblical categories. The first is we see biblically divine anger. Divine anger. Psalm 103.8 says this, and, and we can glory in this aspect of even the divine anger. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he, he's abounding in steadfast love. We are grateful that the Lord is slow to anger, but the Bible does describe that God does have anger. What is God angry about? How does God display anger? Right? And, and sometimes in the Bible, and I'll get into a lot of detail, we just don't have a lot of time this morning to do this, uh, anthropomorphisms or, or ways in which God is described to help us to understand him using basically experiences or expressions of, of human experience. God displays anger. The way he emotes anger is, is not the same as the way you and I do. Right? We believe that God is not a God driven by passions and desires. His anger is not necessarily a, a response to something. It's his being. 
and the way in which he acts toward evil. You'll see that in several passages, Romans 1.18, God is angry with sinners and with sin. God demonstrates his anger, his wrath toward sinners, toward sin. Now, if you're sitting there this morning and, and you, you don't have faith in Christ, I want you to pay attention to what God is describing here in his word. If you do have faith in Christ, what should happen as we talk about this is don't dismiss or downplay the immensity of the wrath of God. What you have to do is to look to Christ and he becomes more glorious. Juxtaposed to the, 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 the wrath and the anger of God toward sinners. If you hear Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Did you catch that? That God acts in anger toward those who are sinners, those who are unrighteous. That is the, the beginning place of the beauty of the gospel. And for us, we who find ourselves, which we've been taught so well in Ephesians, we who find ourselves in Christ, now we see the, the beauty of the work of Christ to satisfy, to propitiate the wrath of God on our behalf. That Christ was protective for us who believe. Withholding the wrath of God toward us and taking it upon himself. Another way the Bible describes God in his anger is God is indignant against evil. There's a lot of talk about justice today. But make no mistake about it, that God is storing up his wrath against all those who do evil. God's not sitting by twiddling his thumbs asking what he's going to do with all the things that are happening in the world today. The Bible makes very clear that that's actually the patience of God. It goes back to Psalm 103, demonstrating the character of God in his patience because of his loving kindness toward those who believe. But God is storing up wrath, indignant against evil, and he's never not those things. Turn over to Psalm chapter 2 just very quickly. Psalm chapter 2. And I'll mention one other passage in Revelation 19. Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm chapter 2. I think this is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Later, he'll tell us that all these kings of the earth will be made a footstool for the anointed one. Revelation uh, nineteen fifteen, we see the, the, this coming to pass. From his mouth, the Bible says, comes a sharp sword talking about Christ, the anointed one, with which to take down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury 
of the wrath of God the Almighty. Never forget the anger of the Lord, the indignancy of the Lord against evil. You see, when you meditate on those things, I know our natural response would be fear. There's an appropriate fear, but it should turn our heart to the beauty and the glories and the riches of Christ and the work of Christ who, where sin was not just swept under the rug, sin, sin was actually born on Christ on the cross. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him for our sake. So if you ever forget that God does demonstrate anger, you look at the, the cross. You see the beauty of the cross in what Christ was bearing on our behalf. That was meant for you, believer. That was meant for me. For those of you who don't believe, Unless you believe, that will be poured out on you, the Bible makes very clear. The final thing I'll say is God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Just very quickly, we're doing a survey, and I just want to set up so that we don't jade our view of anger when we talk about man and our sinful anger, and then we start to have this tendency to wonder, well, why is God angry? You need to understand that first. To understand man's anger properly. Romans 3, I'll start in verse 21. We'll go down to verse maybe 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of, this righteous, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus There's not a better way to proclaim to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus than to also understand the depth of the wrath of God towards sinners and sin. And you can feel the weight of that to some degree. And and here's the fact of the matter. When you you look to Christ on the cross, you were a contributor to that. Your sin deserved the wrath and the anger of God. What a glorious Christ is. We have, and in fact, on the Lord's Day, we come to worship. Don't ever forget on Sundays when we come to worship that this is, this is one of the primary reasons that we worship this great God. It's his, his wrath, his anger was satisfied for we who believe. So if you don't believe today, trust Christ. Run to Christ. If you question that, this is why the Bible is always uh, getting to you to ask this primary question making sure that you trust Christ truly, that you trust Christ genuinely. Now, let's transition. We'll talk about human anger. So we started with the first category, divine anger. That is always righteous and good because it's against the the, the proper things. I had a mentor one time who said, um, Dale, I think you're doing things right. I'd made some people upset. I know that's shocking. Um, I'd made some people upset about a couple of things that I, I said and some of the things that I had written. And, uh, and his comment to me was, he said, Dale, um, don't worry about it. I think he was my boss at the time. He said, I think you're doing the right thing. And he said, one of the things that helps me to know that is because uh, you're making all the right people mad. 
And I was like, oh, that's, that gives me a little bit of confidence, I think. Uh, but as I look at divine anger, I think that's, that's actually true of God in the way in which he demonstrates anger. He, he's, his anger is poured out, his wrath is poured out on proper things, the things that we would categorize as evil. Now, second category is human righteous anger. Now, let's pause for a second. And I know you people are like super godly, all right? And you automatically think that any time that you express anger, that you're closer to the, the top category, divine anger, right? And you say, yes, I fit in this category, the human, my, uh, my human righteous anger, right? And you have a way, I get it, I do the same thing where we try and justify our anger in some way. Now, before I go to, to say that all of us are mostly sinful in our anger, I do think we have to pause. The Bible does give a category, at least in, in my reckoning. People disagree with this, but in my reckoning, I think the Bible does give a category for uh, human righteous anger. Some people uh, call this by various things. I think Ephesians 4.26 makes clear that this is possible. Ephesians 4.26, um, be angry and do not sin. And then, he, and then he gives us a a caveat here, I think a, a caution that we have to be careful of. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, right? And then what does he say? Because you will give Satan an opportunity. So he's coupling a warning together with, I think, an overt teaching about um, what God says regarding anger. Even in our anger, if it is righteous, be cautious and careful because it can quickly go towards something that's sinful, if we're not careful. No, he's not saying, husband and wife, if you lay down at night and you, you go to bed one night and angry at one another, then the whole world is doomed and you've given Satan an opportunity to your, into your marriage, right? Uh, he's just giving a, a, a proximity of time. Deal with stuff quickly. Deal with your anger quickly. Now, notice the, 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 the back of that passage where he says you will give an opportunity to, to the evil one. We have to be cautious even in our anger, even if we could say that it's just and right and it's for the sake of the name of God and we're against, we're against that which is evil and we're actually doing things in a way to oppose the evil that reflects the character and the nature and the name of God. I say that elaborately because it's very difficult for us fallen sinful human beings to do all of that and to do it well. And I think the Bible wears this, bears this tension in Ephesians 4.26 here where he says to deal with this quickly and don't give an opportunity to the evil one. And what does he mean by that? I think he's coupling a warning here, even when we have righteous anger, that we have to be cautious. What is Satan good at? Name some of the things that the Bible describes that, that Satan does and that Satan does well. The Bible describes him as, a, as an accuser of the brethren. The Bible describes him as the father of lies all kinds of ways that we see descriptions of the evil one, and that's often what happens, is when we don't deal with our anger properly and in appropriate time, what happens is we tend to drift. We allow Satan to do what Satan does, right? To condemn inappropriately. Maybe we take on that same spirit of the age or the spirit of the evil one, and we begin to condemn someone else inappropriately. We have to be cautious and careful. I'll give you a couple of caveats, the way I would describe things that fence in what we might categorize as human righteous anger. I put them in your notes so that you can reflect on these at some point in the future. Righteous anger acts against actual sin, not just perceived sin, not just 
that you took something personally and you're trying to be some sort of righteous warrior, uh, but it's actually against true and legitimate sin. Righteous anger also focuses on God's kingdom. Now, the reason I say it like that is because we have a tendency for our anger to focus not on God's kingdom, but on our kingdom. If something in our kingdom was not set up appropriately, uh, somebody knocked some chess players down that that we weren't uh, expecting would go down, something has happened in my little world, and I'm not very pleased about that. And so we categorize that as sinful in some way, and we respond with vehemence or anger or whatever. And so we have to be cautious and careful here. And I think this is the appropriate warning. So I'm not saying okay, that there aren't appropriate times where we can be angry. Listen, when you hear about, um, which I do in counseling quite a bit, when you hear about children who are abused, that stirs within you a righteous anger. Where that is a great evil. And when you categorize things the way God does in, in categories of good and evil, and that goes in its appropriate category, there is a vengeance that certainly wells up. And the caution that we have to understand is vengeance is not ours. We have to be cautious in the way in which we respond. So, so we can see biblically that, that there is a response that's, that's proper at proper times that motivates to do good. I think of somebody like William Wilberforce. We, watched, we re-watched that movie not long ago. And I think about him standing up against all odds, against a great evil. The Lord has motivated people in the past to accomplish great things as they see evil appropriately. And sometimes, yes, I think motivated properly to defend the name of God. And that that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, here's the unfortunate news. Remember I told you Thomas Brooks warned you about scorching truth. The truth of the matter is that most of the anger that you and I experience, okay, and I don't limit that to any person sitting in a chair or standing in this room right now, the fact of the matter is, is that most of the time that you and I express anger is it's sinful anger. It fits into this final category. And this is where we have to be honest or else you can never repair or seek re- restoration from the Lord. This is one of the things that we teach our kids all the time, is it's okay that you made a mistake, but if you don't admit that it was a mistake, you can never change it, right? And I think that's where we find ourselves sometimes wrestling with issues like anger, is we take, I'm chief among these, we take opportunity when we see something and we want to respond in whatever way to defend whatever it is, something that we're passionate about. And we want to justify why we did this or why we responded this way or why we said these things or why we, you know, lost our mind at that moment. Instead of pausing to to evaluate that from a biblical perspective and being willing on some level to say that even if I was justified because that was evil, maybe the way that I went about doing that was not righteous. Maybe it was sinful. So we have to be, be cautious. And I say this because... Rarely is our human anger righteous. James 1, 19. He tells us that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we have to be cautious about our expressions of anger. Now, hopefully this morning you can, you can say that, man, this is a struggle that, that I have on some level. Sometimes what we do when we respond in anger is we, I don't know about you, you probably, maybe you should probably think about an example or two, maybe one of the most recent times, unfortunately, 
Um, me getting angry was very recent, so I have vivid examples in my mind. Do you have vivid examples in your mind where you either thought, and this is there, here's a couple of ways that you respond in anger. People are different, okay, but it's the same sin in the heart, but it manifests itself differently, okay? The way it manifests itself often is, is two extreme, one of two extremes, okay? Is you're either the person that clams up, okay, where you isolate yourself or you just sit and pout. Now, I know if you're like above 10, you shouldn't be pouting, but like it's the reality, okay? Like some of you sit and stew and you pout and you don't say anything, nothing comes out of your mouth. And so you're sort of like, well, I'm closer to righteous because I didn't say anything. Like I know how you think, okay? This is how this, this, is how this works. You clam up and it's just, it's stewing. And, and you're that balloon that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when it does pop, look out right? It's like you can handle it for so long, the wick is quite long, but once it burns out, like the rocket's soaring. I mean, it's going off, okay? Then there's, then there's the other way. I tend sort of toward this way, is the blow-up person, right? Where something happens and immediately you just, you, you just ignite, okay? Is it doesn't take much of a flame and the fuel that was already there, just poof, and there it goes, right? And you can see yourself responding in, in one of those two ways. Now, the, the details sometimes flesh out into other nuances, but those are sort of two big ways that we see this responding. And whenever we, we have this response, our, our initial reaction, our first reaction always, and this is our sinful human disposition, okay? Our, our sinful action is to always blame something or someone, right? Can you think in your example of that person or that thing, if this hadn't have happened, right? If something hadn't have broken, you wouldn't have responded that way. And you start to describe circumstantial things. You see, in your rationalizing, what you're doing is you're actually blaming that particular circumstance as the cause of your anger. It displaces what you, you are willing to do in taking responsibility for how you responded. And what I would say to that is external circumstances, while they certainly give occasion to your anger, it is, it is an internal problem. It is not a circumstantial problem. So those things become the occasion by which you get angry. But they are not the cause of your anger. Do you see the distinction? Right? Just because my wife says something that I don't appreciate in a given moment doesn't mean that she's wrong necessarily. And it doesn't mean that she's the cause or the culprit. Because she's responsible to God for how she responds and I'm also equally responsible to God for how I respond, whether she said something righteous or sinful. Do you see that? And so the onus becomes on us for how we respond in any given moment. And this is the caution that we all have to pay attention to because we love scapegoats. We seek for them as if it's our job to find scapegoats for every action that we feel the tension that we might be guilty in whatever moment we seek for those scapegoats. And we have to be cautious because, listen, circumstances are a part of the anger. They influence us in that direction, but they are not the cause. It's not the circumstance that will be held accountable for your response. And it may be a deep and egregious evil that has happened to you. But you, and you are not responsible for that. But you are responsible for how you respond before God in a given situation. 
This is, way, this is the way the Bible tells us to take up arms against suffering. The Bible doesn't say suffering in those terms is our fault. But what he does say is the way we respond in suffering is now our responsibility unto him. So this is a huge distinction. Now listen, get back to Thomas Brooks. This is scorching. I get it, okay? But it's like medicine. When we take it, it tastes bad going down. But what God says is these things are good for us. Now, let's see if we can define anger. Define anger. I, I've, I've relied upon several books that I think have done a really excellent job describing this. I, I put them at the end. Robert Jones' Uprooting Anger is one of the primary ones where I think he organizes just a biblical understanding of anger throughout his book is entitled Uprooting Anger, and I think that's an appropriate sort of phrase or, or uh, a word picture to describe what needs to happen right, in, in, with anger in our heart, is rooting it out. He's given a definition I think is actually quite excellent. It encompasses a lot about this issue of anger. This is what he says, our anger is our whole person response. Now, I'm going to break that down in a second, but I want you to think about whole person response. It's about things that we feel and things that we do, both. Whole person, active response of negative moral judgments against perceived evil. A lot of things going on there. Uh, questions are perception, what we perceive as being evil. There can be a problem there where our anger becomes sinful. We make moral judgments about something. <clears throat> uh, we could be wrong in our moral judgment. That would lead to sinful anger. It is a whole person response, meaning... Like, if you've ever been, like, seriously angry, you, like, lose your mind, and you don't even act sane in some of those moments. Are you guys, are you, like, non-human people? You don't, you don't understand what I'm talking about? It's a whole person response where you are, as the Bible would describe the opposite, being self-controlled. You find yourself out of control. And that being out of control, you, you, you feel like you can't help it in that moment because what you feel inside, the Bible describes this even when it's talking about the wrath of God or, or even human anger, that it was burning in you. That your anger burned hot against someone. or That's the feeling, right? And then there's action. And we can describe anger in lots of different actions, whether that be verbally or even in our behavior of isolation or in more aggressive, violent type things that we may do as well. And that's all a part of our anger. Robert Jones continues, he says this, anger, or it, it anger compromises or comprises the whole person and encompasses our whole package. And notice how he breaks this down, beliefs, feelings, actions, and desires. And this is the way the Bible describes us both inside and out. Beliefs, certain things that we believe. Right? I mean, you know how this works. Is, is You think that you're the only player in this whole game, and as something's unfolding, that you have sort of the bird's eye view, and you can interpret people's motives and why they're doing such and whatever. Right? And so in that moment, you have beliefs about certain things that are unfolding circumstantially, and you're making moral judgments along the way, which includes indicting other people for the motives that they have. And often the way that you respond is based on wrong beliefs, right? Certainly about God and about that person. You're, you're infusing or imputing motive within that person. And then we have a tendency to respond, driven by desires which lead to actions, which we see in James. 
Brian Borgman adds to this. He says, anger is something we feel and do. I, I like that. I think he's, he's absolutely right. So don't, don't just boil anger down to your doing because anger starts first in the feeling because it starts first in the inner man. It starts first in the heart. And what we have to be cautious about is how we define what causes anger. You see, a lot of times what happens is we describe what causes anger as external. And so the way we think we fight against anger is external. Well, I'm just going to change my behavior, okay? Can you think of uh, several ways that secular or worldly responses to anger? Um, Can you think of those? Some of those are are things like when you get in in a situation where you feel yourself boiling is you should pause and count to 10, right? So what are they saying is the cause of the anger in that moment? Something circumstantial. Maybe they say in that moment when you feel yourself being triggered, maybe they'll use terms like that, is that you just need to walk away. Now, are those things in and of themselves necessarily bad? No, but what you have to be cautious about is what you're saying is the cause of your anger in that moment. There's no dealing with the the feelings, the desires, the thoughts, the beliefs in your heart at that moment. You're trying to just curb the actions externally. And that's, that's a caution that I would give to you. You have to be very, very careful. Sometimes, I've actually read this in secular textbooks, is uh, to hold your breath. Like some of you wouldn't be breathing now if you held your breath against all of the times of anger that well up in you. But my point is you have to be cautious about what you say are the causes of anger. Now, there are all kinds of things that we like to point our finger at to say that are the causes of anger. I'm going to start first with some of the secular, some of the secular things We may say something, well, it was unconscious. I didn't mean it. I didn't even know what was going on at the time. It was just something sort of in there underneath that I'm not really aware of. And this is sort of a a Freudian understanding, but we describe things from an, an unconscious mind. You know why we describe things in that way? Because it distances us from our action. It pushes us away from responsibility. Because if it was something that was unconscious, I wasn't in control of. But the Bible describes all the words and deeds and actions and thoughts that come out of you that you're responsible for those. In fact, the Bible tells us that you will be held into account for every idle word and thought and deed that comes from you. And so we have to be cautious here. Is We may not be totally aware of what we're saying or what we're thinking in a given moment, but to describe something as unconscious is distancing ourselves from responsibility. Maybe we say it was because of childhood trauma. Now, I need to pause here and we need to be gentle. And the, the, the way we need to be gentle here is we're not dismissing that childhood trauma is real and legitimate and it should never be swept under the rug. But here's one of the things that I will say is that childhood trauma does not create your identity. That you live out of that experience for the rest of your life and that dominates who you are and who you will always be. You see, the Bible tells a different story. The Bible says that you can be made new, completely new, and that now we live positionally in Christ, not determined by some experience that we had in the past. And that's not to dismiss that the past experience was was, was not bad. It was bad. But to use this idea of childhood trauma as a constant um, excuse for the ways that we respond is improper biblically. 
right? We are still called to that deep level of suffering to respond appropriately to God. Now, that is something that we learn over time. That's certainly true. But we have to start taking responsibility for how we respond to given circumstances and situations before God, no matter what. Maybe it was bad nurturing. And we've had a century of this where we talk about bad parenting. And listen, there's lots of bad parenting. Um, you get involved in counseling ministry and you'll, you'll find out. Like, uh, I go home sometimes and I kiss my wife because I'm like, babe, I, sometimes we think we have it bad. But man, it's, it, can be, it can be rough. Life can be rough. And so you think about bad nurturing. Yes, there's bad parenting everywhere. If you work in the school systems, you can attest to, to that, that that's true. And the Bible makes very clear that that's a strong influence. It's a part of God's design, but it's not determinative. God clarifies that confusion among the Israelites in Ezekiel 18. It's building off of Exodus 20 where he's describing in, in the second great commandment that you're not to have no idols before you. And then he goes on to say, this is the, the consequence that comes with that, that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation to those who hate him. So the influence is massive. God is designed for parents and families to be massively influential on children. To, to give them a base of what's normal, how to live in relation to God primarily, to have a Godward orientation about everything in life, not just the commandments, not just God and who he is, but about socially, life, how we live in relation to God. And when that's not happening, when parents live in relation to idols as being more important than God, then a child learns that as normative, but it's not determinative. Ezekiel 18 makes very clear that it's the soul that sins that will die. So as that child lives in that normative fashion, responding in the same way of, of his parents, he is now, as a sinner by nature, he is sinning, and now he will bear the wrath of God because it's the soul that sins will die. It's not determinative. It is influential, true. So we have to pause in, in, in stopping to say it, that was the cause. Think about it like this. Listen, I see good and bad stories a lot. I see really wonderful stories that come out of really bad parenting. I see really bad stories that come out of great parenting. So we can't say that these things are determinative. It's how we respond and what guides our responses no matter what influences us. We can think about present sufferings or unmet emotional needs. Unmet emotional needs are, are a primary sort of scapegoat for many of us. As I had this expectation, it was not met, and so I respond with vehemence and anger. How does the Bible describe these things? These are not proper causes, because if you see those as, as proper causes, you will seek worldly remedies to assuage this whole response of anger outwardly. And you'll think you're doing okay if you just get rid of certain actions that were so dominant within you at one point in time. If you don't target the heart, you never uproot anger fully. It's just waiting, biding its time until something, uh, something presses you hard enough to where now the balloon explodes. And so you have to uproot it where it exists. And biblically, turn to James. Let's, let's deal with that for the last little bit that we have left. <clears throat> James. This is a hard, hard question. And I love the way that the scriptures describe this. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, if, if I were to just ask you in any given scenario, 
that you experience, whether it be, you know, in your, excuse me, in your marital relationship with your children, maybe people at, you know, coworkers or your boss or whatever. And I'm sure there's conflict in one of those important relationships somewhere, right? If not, you're, you're not human. Um, you're living in the metaverse or whatever that thing is, right? <clears throat> but the, the response that we have here, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Your natural disposition is to constantly scan those relationships and start pointing fingers as to who's causing this and who's causing that. I want you to notice how the Bible answers this question. I want you to notice how James answers this question. Remember, he's not acknowledging that we are to be without conflict. In fact, he assumes that we have conflict because we live in a cursed world. We all still wrestle with the flesh. He's talking to believers. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What does he say? Is not the source your pleasure that wage war in your members? He goes on, you lust and do not have, and so you commit murder. Liken that back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the issue of lust and murder. If you have anger in your heart, he says, you commit murder. For we all, or, or, um, verse two, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your what? Pleasures. So what's he saying is a source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Not that bad actor. Not that evil person necessarily, right? It's us in the ways in which we respond to certain things because we have pleasures and desires and passions and envies, things that we want in that moment. And so we respond and we engage in conflict. You don't often engage in conflict with patty cake, okay? You engage in conflict with burning hot anger. Emotions are involved and so on. So we see ruling wants, envy, deep desires, and selfish motives. So what's the source of all these things? It's not the external. Those things need to be repaired absolutely behaviorally. But if we stop there, we never get to the depths of what God is wanting to repair in us. If we're not honest about what's going on inside of us. There are a couple of x-ray questions I think will be helpful for you. You say, am, am I anger? Or I would use the term even bitter about something. Does this issue consume you? Like people often wonder like why they can't sleep at night. Well, it's because of things like this. Because you're like stewing over it constantly and you're trying to work out what's the best way I should respond. How should I deal with this, right? <clears throat> Does this issue or thing consume you? Do you dwell on it constantly? Is it something that's constantly a part of your thoughts and a part of your mind? Are you willing to sin to get what it is that you want? And do you sin when you don't get it, whatever that thing is? It demonstrates unmet needs or unmet wants that you have, pleasures that you're seeking after. And what you see coming out when you don't get that thing or when you get it and somebody tries to take it, you see a response that wells up from within that now engages in quarrel and conflict driven by anger. So what's a correct response? 
What's a correct response? How do we respond appropriately here? So are you seeing the depths? And listen, here's the deal. The beauty of the Scripture is that the Scripture is the only thing, based on Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, the only thing known to man by the power of the Spirit to go to the depths of the human heart to unveil these things for you. I've mentioned this before in our series, but this is how you see the beauty of the grace of God. You want to know why it's so hard to keep up with your reading plan? It's because your flesh doesn't want any of this. That's why it's so hard. It's a spiritual thing when you're reading the Word because the the Word is the only thing by the power of the Spirit known to man to unveil these types of things at this level. All of us are content to go through whatever types of uh, training videos we have to, to to learn about anger and how we cope with anger and breathing processes and how to escape. And we're, we're happy to do that stuff because we think we can tame it. You can tame your anger about the same way James says you can tame your tongue. You have to get rid of it and mortify it. You have to repent of it. The Bible describes it this way in James 4, 6. So if we're continuing our thought, this is what he says. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. To the humble, the one who's willing to admit it was his selfish motives. It was his selfish desires. It was the things that he was envious of that he's seeking. So it's a call to repentance. A call to repentance how? In the way in which we speak. You see this in Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32. We need to speak differently. Let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that's edifying and it brings grace to the one who hears. That's verse 29. So it changes the way that we speak. That When we see repentance, this is not worldly repentance. Right, A worldly sorrow. This is godly sorrow where we see ourselves pursuing the things that are honorable to the Lord. We seek peace, Romans 12, 18. We seek peace as far as it depends on us. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. We seek peace as far as it depends on us. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Verse 5. Well, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is just after he's talked about thinking on things above Um, not thinking on things below. Then verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, similar ideas to what you see in James, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So the, the New Testament is helping you to understand where this stuff is coming from and what we're to do with it. We are to mortify it. That's a part of our repentance right? It's the same way as say, don't think about certain things. Okay. Well, I don't want to get angry anymore. Well, good. I'm glad that you don't want to get angry anymore. But if you don't do anything about it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get angry again. You have to replace those things. Biblically speaking, you have to mortify those desires and now pursue desires that are pleasing to the Lord. So we mortify. That's a part of our repentance. It's the beauty of repentance. Forgiveness. I always say this when we're dealing with, when when you're dealing with anger, issues of anger, is this comes often from bitterness. You're going to learn about forgiveness next week, so I don't want to belabor this point, but sometimes you need to, to probe in your own heart. Maybe there are people that you're bitter at or you're, you're rigid toward because uh, roots of bitterness build up toward anger, wrath, malice, and, and, and I think sort of grow in degree building up in us. So we have to be careful in how we respond. And notice when you when you're bitter, the Bible calls you, Ephesians 4:32, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Jesus warns about this in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He tells us if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us. This helps to 
cut off those desires or those aspects of bitterness in us that we might have towards someone else. The next thing, which is what I mentioned in Proverbs 15, 18, is patience. Part of the reason that I see in me, if I were to assess myself when I get angry, it's part of, partly because I'm impatient. And I remember Proverbs 18, 15, 18, that a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. So the Bible tells us to be patient, learn to be patient. This is a part of what we see in the, the anger of God, divine anger. Is he slow to anger, right? Rich in mercy, rich in love, and then trust. Go and read those passages. I don't have time to read them now. 1 Peter 2, Romans chapter 12, to trust. To trust in who? To trust in God. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter that even when Jesus was being reviled, that he didn't take matters into his own hands. He entrusted himself to the one who deals justly. The way Paul says it in Romans chapter 12 is, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So we trust in the Lord that he will do ultimate justice, that Revelation 21.5 will come true. He will make all things new, and he will make all things just and right, and he can do justice better than you and I can do justice. The final thing I'll say is Proverbs 25.28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Pursue self-control. Because what the Bible is helping you to see as a diagnosis is that when you respond in anger, you're lacking self-control. And what does that mean? Based on Galatians chapter 5, which we've learned in our series in January, is we're not being filled with the Spirit. We're not walking with the Spirit when we don't see self-control. So our call is to pursue self-control, pursue submission to the Spirit, getting rid of desire so that now the Spirit builds in us self-control. Let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. Lord, we're grateful for your word. So much to process here, so much to chew on. That's very applicable to our daily lives. And Lord, let's, if we're just honest, we miss the mark here so often and we need your grace. So grateful that you are slow to anger and rich in love and mercy and steadfast love toward us. And that's why we see the beauty deepening in us as we wrestle with sin, the beauty of Christ. We see the depth of what he's, what he's done. We see the depth at which we've been forgiven. And you tell us in your word that when we have been forgiven much, we love much. Because we, we see the depth of the love of you toward us in Christ. And so God, I pray that that's where our thoughts go. That when we struggle with these issues of anger, that our thoughts will go to the things that you desire. And it would go to the mercy and grace that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so in our hearts. Lord, help us to not just hear these things, but to learn to do them in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.